There is no greater threat to a free and democratic nation than a government that fails to protect its citizens' freedom and liberty as aggressively as it pursues justice. Bernard B. Carrick, from his autobiography, Jailer to Jailed. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. This episode comes from a listener's suggestion. You can email me those or anything else at wyomingpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks to the person who suggested this month's case. And a reminder of listener caution that this episode in particular contains depictions of murder and violence that some listeners may find offensive. This is also not an episode suitable for children. I'm Scott Fuller, and coming up on this month's episode, a murder investigation as cold as the crime was tragic, and the case's inexplicable and shocking march toward a conclusion, or a lack of one. The amount of freedom and liberty that we're willing to hand over to governments, large and small, to say nothing of private corporations and other groups and organizations, is a product of a society which has never been without freedom and liberty. My generation of Americans is, I think, remarkably quick to surrender its own privacy in exchange for some perceived benefit or convenience. That's not necessarily a terrible thing, maybe not altogether a bad thing, My generation, however, is, I believe, indisputably accustomed to our freedoms. We have not had to win our freedom. It was given to us at birth. And so it is appreciated differently, if not taken for granted. This is not an indictment of my generation or any other. It's an understandable reality. When you're born with something, when something is inherent to you, you take it for granted until it's gone. That's not lazy or even complacent, it's just human nature. If you're born with eyesight, you take it for granted every single day of your life until a day might come when you might lose it or begin to lose it. This is, of course, also true when someone close to you passes away, especially if they die suddenly. It's true of a thousand different things in our lives. We all take for granted countless things every day, our freedom in this good and great country being one of them. But we didn't ourselves earn many of those things. At least my generation didn't earn its freedom. That was done for us dozens and hundreds of years ago. And so we take it for granted, as we eventually do with any gift. Our inherent freedom is both collective and individual in our society. We have liberty both together and of ourselves. This is a story of individual liberty and the taking of it. The first person you'll meet in this story is 25-year-old Lisa Ehlers, whose future was deprived of her in an unimaginable and senseless way. Several decades ago, law enforcement might have thought of Lisa Ehlers as a, quote, true victim, someone who's apparently done nothing wrong, lived her life on the straight and narrow, quote-unquote normally, a wrong place, wrong time sort of crime. Law enforcement doesn't talk that way anymore, and with good reason. 
As I've said before, a person is no less murdered if they're of a certain race, or if they're among our addicted, or even if they're among our country's criminals. Most homicide investigators today will tell you that murder is murder is murder is murder. But even 35 years ago, or more than that now, Lisa Ehlers would have been considered by everybody to be a true victim. Lisa's body was found by two highway workers just after daybreak on Thursday, June 21, 1984. She'd been left along the side of Highway 191 in Sublet County, about 30 miles south of Jackson. The shocking discovery was called into police at 6.08 a.m. Investigators arrived to discover Lisa's car, a silver VW Jetta, pointed south, about seven feet from where Lisa's body lay. Eerily, the Jetta's engine was still running, its doors closed, and the vehicle's right turn signal was still flashing. A surfboard was strapped to the roof. Inside, a cooler sat on the front passenger seat. Folding chairs and other belongings were strewn in the back. It was evident immediately that Lisa had planned to be away somewhere for some period of time. She'd even stuffed her own landline telephone into the shelf below the rear window. There was no sign outside the car of any serious altercation or any sexual assault. That was confirmed the next week by an autopsy. State investigators took possession of the car as local authorities commenced a search of the surrounding area. Robbery was quickly ruled out as a motive for the killing. A large amount of money in Lisa's purse remained undisturbed. The amount wasn't disclosed by police then, but friends corroborated the cash, stating that Lisa had been planning to meet her husband in Florida. She'd been carrying close to $500 with her. Now, more than three decades later, that's an amount equivalent to $1,300 in cash. The plan was for Lisa and her husband to work and play in Florida for the rest of the summer and return to Wyoming in the fall. The couple had begun construction of a new restaurant in Panama City the previous year, and it was time to get that restaurant up and running and open the doors. Lisa's husband, Peter, was a partner in the Sweetwater restaurant in Jackson, where Lisa had also worked as a waitress a few years before. Within 20 minutes of the discovery of Lisa's body having been called in, police had begun recording license plate numbers of every car driving in either direction along Highway 191. Lisa had been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the back of the head, with a large caliber gun. Investigators grew to theorize that Lisa had been shot within just minutes of that initial 911 call at 6.08 a.m. Their stated belief was that the murder itself occurred at precisely 6.05 or 6.06 a.m., two or three minutes before. People who live in the Jackson Hole area don't get shot not on a regular basis anyway, and certainly not like this, which is one of the reasons that Lisa Ehlers' abrupt and puzzling murder was all the more frightening to locals. There was another reason, too. Lisa's killing wasn't the first of the summer. Six weeks earlier in May, a bank executive had been shot and killed in his condo in Jackson. Later that same day, and in Florida of all places, an acquaintance of the same bank executive had also been murdered. What were the odds of two friends being murdered within hours of one another in different states? Police thought those odds were long indeed. And when cocaine residue had been found inside the condo of the slain bank executive, it was soon theorized that the killings had been coordinated and drug-related. The Florida connection, as it was referred to, was then immediately considered by police in Lisa Ehlers' murder, too. 
keeping in mind that there was no indication that Lisa or her husband had any known connections to or need of illegal drugs. But the coincidental circumstances of Lisa's murder, as she was also headed to Florida, remember, nonetheless stretched the imaginations of lawmen in Wyoming. And the Florida connection was considered early in the Lisa Ehlers investigation, and it never went away. But it seemed that Lisa had no connection to the dead banker in Jackson or the murdered man in Florida at all. Lisa was young, beautiful, vivacious, really, with a smile that was well-suited for parting hefty tips from the wallets of her restaurant customers. And she made the most of living in the West and enjoyed a very active and outdoorsy lifestyle. She'd first moved to the area from Florida seven years before, when she was 18, drawn along with countless others to the place and the pace and the people in far western Wyoming. Her family had vacationed there when Lisa was a young girl, and the West had never left her. For a young life, hers was renowned, having attended Wheaton College in Massachusetts and even a prep school in Switzerland. She was outgoing and outspoken in the best possible way and was rarely seen without a smile. For a ski season or two, Lisa was content to get by on a whim in the resort town, but like all of us, Lisa was looking for more, for better. She'd recently diversified her professional interests. By 1984, she'd barely worked at the restaurant her husband owned anymore, and she took a job at a property management agency, which, in Jackson Hole, might be as close to striking on a gold mine as you could come in 1984. Her outgoing personality and great looks were suitable for that line as well. And Lisa Ehlers, seemingly without trying, had slid into the second chapter of her professional life, just like that. Until June, when everything stopped. But if there'd been any indications in Lisa's life that she'd be such a target for such an inexplicable and sudden end, Lisa herself gave no signs of it. According to her friends, she'd been her usual sunny self in recent weeks. On the day before her murder, she played tennis, grabbing a couple of beers after that, and finally, going to the grocery store, getting some food for the next day's long drive at a local Safeway. An hour before she was shot, Lisa Ehlers was seen having an early breakfast at her husband's restaurant. This is how police first determined that Lisa must have been killed on the side of the road 30 miles south no earlier than 6 a.m. that morning. And given the time the drive would take, a time for the murder of 6.05 or 6.06 a.m. was determined. Highway 191 near Bondurant, Wyoming is also Highway 189. It's a windy stretch through the canyon along the Hoback River. There are plenty of blind turns and a few straightaways. And Lisa's car and her body were found along the side of the road in a spot where visibility between those turns is limited to about a quarter mile in either direction. Meaning someone could be driving on that highway just a few hundred yards away and not see or hear anything suspicious. This made the possibility of an eyewitness to the murder of Lisa Ehlers far less likely. But police did turn up two outstate witnesses who'd been traveling in the same car north on that highway. The witnesses reported seeing two white men standing near a dark sedan, which was parked right next to Lisa's silver Jetta. One of the two even reported seeing what looked like a body lying on the ground nearby. The men appeared to be standing over it, examining it, they said. But the witnesses simply drove on, out of fear, probably, and despite their suspicion. And had they stopped, they very well may have been shot next. 
The witnesses were interviewed by DCI investigators within days, and soon after brought back to Wyoming for in-person interviews. Investigators also attempted to hypnotize those witnesses into remembering specific details about what they would have seen for just a few seconds several weeks prior by that time. Police, in fact, seemed oddly eager to employ hypnotic regression on these witnesses at every turn in this case, mostly probably because they didn't have much else to go on. So a so-called hypnosis expert from the state fire marshal's office performed the experiments on the two witnesses. Turned out to be three, actually. The hypnosis did lend some new detail, according to investigators, but, quote, nothing earth-shattering. Here's the thing about hypnosis in criminal cases. It's not always a smart thing for police to do. If it ever is. Because whether or not you personally believe that buried memories can be recalled through accessing some kind of altered state, most courts do not. In many cases, once a witness has been hypnotized, none of the hypnotically induced testimony they give can be used at trial. In fact, in some cases, all testimony from a witness who's been hypnotized may be stricken from a trial. Investigators in the Lisa Ehlers murder case had discovered three and only three possible witnesses to the moment surrounding the end of her life, and within just a few weeks, they had all but ensured that those witnesses' testimony could not be used at trial. But they did have Lisa's body, which was left at the scene. The body of a murder victim might be the single most important piece of a homicide investigation. It's typically a source of physical evidence. It can also aid the prosecution of a case in other legal ways. But at a more basic level, finding the body can help investigators determine a possible motive for the crime just by finding it and where they find it. Where otherwise, a motive might not be present right away. For example, in robberies resulting in death, which are rare, by the way, robberies don't typically result in murder. But when they do, the victim's body is often left right where it is. The killer presumably would have stolen what they wanted to steal. No reason then to risk being found in possession of a body afterwards or being witnessed disposing of one. Whereas a body that has been concealed is far more likely to be connected to a crime of passion or a perpetrator who is known to the victim. A concealed body can also be an indication of premeditation. Lisa's body obviously had not been concealed. There had been no effort made to hide the crime at all. And that did tell investigators quite a bit about her killer, at least at a basic level. Obviously, this wasn't an abduction. Lisa hadn't been moved to another location in the course of a crime, so probably not a sex crime, which an autopsy later confirmed anyway. Robbery had also been ruled out. All of Lisa's money, all of her possessions, some of them valuable, had been left untouched. Even some kind of 80s road rage scenario is unlikely, given the second shot, the coup de grace, to the back of Lisa's skull while she lay face down on the pavement, already wounded. So if you think about it, what remaining reasons are there to kill someone and leave them there, as happened to Lisa? It would have probably been someone known to Lisa, or someone hired by someone known to Lisa, because nobody who wasn't close to Lisa would have known about the trip. Likely, it would have been someone local who knew that highway and that turnoff and how relatively sparsely traveled the road would have been around sunrise. But with overt greed and sexual motivations all but discounted, there's only one real possibility left. Someone, for some reason, simply wanted Lisa Ehlers dead, there and then. But nobody 
wanted Lisa Ehlers dead. Not that investigators could find, anyway. Keep in mind, too, that local investigators, and yes, even the state DCI investigators, were at this time, frankly, already in over their head. Not just with one inexplicable homicide, but two. When Lisa Ehlers was murdered, the sheriff's department hadn't yet received back any test results from the state lab dealing with the murder of that bank executive in Jackson Hole. And the local media, based no doubt on local rumor, relentlessly endeavored to link those two cases, that Florida connection, again. The locals found it simply too juicy to put down. Despite some inherent contradictions between the two cases, it was true that both victims had been shot in the head, but the bank executive had been shot with a twenty-two. Lisa's killer had used a larger caliber. Most importantly, though, was the victimology of Lisa herself. She had no connections to illicit drugs or illicit money or illicit anything whatsoever. Was it possible that Lisa and the bank executive had met each other somewhere around town, maybe at a party? Possibly, but not one witness would come forward ever to say that Lisa Ehlers had ever met the murdered bank executive. Local law enforcement slowly recognized this disconnect as well and were left to theorize rather wildly. Police publicly ruled out a, quote, homicidal maniac or demented psychopath, but that left them no closer. Had Lisa already planned to meet someone at that spot along the road when she was murdered? Had Lisa herself witnessed another crime in progress and pulled off to the side of the road to maybe help and was shot for her trouble? Grasping at straws now, later that summer in Twin Falls, Idaho, Police there located a large caliber gun that had been reported stolen from a store in Jackson. But the missing 38 Smith & Wesson, while it was the proper caliber, was not the murder weapon used on Lisa Ehlers, tests later confirmed. That November, Wyoming authorities became interested in two Minnesota men who had been arrested after apparently just randomly shooting people along the highways there. That lead also stalled. Back then in Jackson, the typical reward given by police for information leading to an arrest for any crime around town was $25. By the end of 1984, $20,000 had been put on the line for information leading to the conviction of Lisa's killer or killers. But the money didn't matter. The entry of Lisa's case into a regional database, the Rocky Mountain Information Center, didn't help either. Winter sets in Wyoming and time seems to freeze and Lisa's case grew cold. Then, three years later, with literally a new sheriff in town, the case was reopened. Sheriff Jack Kane announced the renewed interest in the case, adding that, quote, not all avenues in Sublet County have been explored in regards to Lisa's case. And that's when things started to get a little weird. In May 1988, three and a half years into the case, a task force of authorities from Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming announced its very specific interest in Paul Ezra Rhodes as a possible suspect in Lisa Ehlers' murder. Paul Rhodes was an itinerant construction worker who came from a long line of poverty, neglect, domestic violence, alcoholism, drug use, mental illness, and suicide. Paul's parents introduced him to recreational drugs when he was 10 years old. On February 28, 1987, two and a half years after Lisa Ehlers was shot to death in Wyoming, 21-year-old Stacy Baldwin was abducted by Rhodes and driven to a remote location, where Stacy was shot three times and killed. Three weeks later, 23-year-old Nolan Haddon, a male victim this time, 
was shot five times in the parking lot of a convenience store where he worked. Somehow Nolan had survived those shots, but was mortally wounded and immobile. Paul Rhodes had simply dumped Nolan in the store's freezer while he was still alive. There are indications that Nolan had struggled valiantly to escape the freezer for help. Just two days after that, a 34-year-old special ed teacher, Susan Michaelbacher, was abducted by Paul Rhodes at 7 a.m. in front of a grocery store. She was forced to withdraw $2,000 from her bank account and was eventually driven to a remote field where she was raped and shot nine times. Paul Rhodes was caught shortly after Susan Michaelbacher's torture and murder. Rhodes's car, actually his mother's car, was found crashed in Nevada. Police discovered a gun and ammo inside, and a short time later discovered Paul Rhodes gambling at a casino. Rhodes was eventually linked to and charged for all three of those above murders. He was convicted of all three, and later linked to three additional murders, beginning in 1985. It turned out that those other three murders were his first known killings. Those three victims were all women aged 16 to 26. In 2011, Paul Ezra Rhodes apologized to the family of his victims, forgave the prison warden and executioner, and then was put to death by lethal injection. As far as we know, all told, he killed five women and one man in two states from 1985 to 1987. After Rhodes's arrest, and after it became apparent he might be involved with other cases, law enforcement across the Rocky Mountains began looking at their own. And authorities in Wyoming wondered if Paul Rhodes had ever worked there, and they soon discovered he had. Paul Ezra Rhodes had worked for a time in Pinedale and Kimmer and in Jackson, police found. They just didn't know when he worked there. In the spring of 1988, police went public with their new person of interest in the Lisa Ehlers case and pleaded for the public to provide any information that might lead them to establishing a timeline of exactly when Paul Rhodes was in Wyoming, and specifically when he was in Jackson. One man, the owner of a drywall company in Jackson, came forward to police explaining that Paul Rhodes, or as he knew him, John French, an alias that Rhodes sometimes went by, was working for him in Jackson in 1982. That would have been two full years before Lisa Ayler's murder and three years before Paul Ezra Rhodes's first known murder. The task force tried for months to place America's newest serial killer near Jackson, Wyoming, or anywhere in the state, really, around the time Lisa Ayler's was shot to death on the side of the road in 1984. But they never could. And with that, the case went cold again. A new millennium dawned without either 1984 Jackson murder being solved. Lisa's case, or that of the slain bank executive and his friend. Local and state police had received significant help from the DEA and the FBI in that shooting of the banker, but hadn't been able to close it. But they were no closer on Lisa's case. And in truth, the Lisa Ayler's case appeared to be further away from seeing the inside of a courtroom than ever. But those three deaths remain linked somehow in the eyes of the public. One case was rarely cited without the mention of the other. In 2006, 22 years after Lisa had been shot and killed, state authorities handed the case back to the Sublette County Sheriff's Department, which took it and ran with it. 
The Jackson Police Department made public for the first time a composite sketch that was created by the accounts of those out-of-state witnesses who claimed to see two men standing over Lisa's body on the side of the highway that morning. The sketch was published in June 2007. The black-and-white drawing revealed a menacing-looking man with a pudgy face. He wore short, dark hair and a bowl cut with bangs. Picture Javier Barden's villainous character in the movie No Country for Old Men, which ironically was released to theaters a few months after that sketch was. Local authorities pushed the sketch and the details of the case to outlets all across the state, which led nowhere. Until, with the thaw of a Wyoming winter into spring in 2009, 25 years after the fact, police made an arrest. Troy Dean Willoughby was a nomad, among many others, living in the Rocky Mountain West through the 80s and 90s. In 1993, he was arrested for assault at a nightclub in East Helena, Montana, where he lived. He was charged again six months later for an additional crime of driving without insurance and providing a false name to a police officer. But then, after he moved back to Montana, more high-profile offenses emerged, which eventually led to Troy Willoughby's apprehension for failing to register properly as a sex offender. Serious enough. And that's when he was also arrested for the murder of Lisa Ehlers. Lisa's family was called with the news on a Sunday in March 2009. After a quarter century, you can imagine their shock. But police had kept their cold case alive and finally had some good news to share. By then, their Lisa had been dead just about exactly as long as she'd been alive. But at long last, police said her killer was in custody. The break in the investigation came from Troy Willoughby's former wife, who had been interviewed as part of the original investigation. She told police she'd been afraid of her husband around the time of Lisa's murder. More importantly, she placed her then-husband within the proximity of the killing as well telling investigators that she, Troy, and another man, Tim Basie, had been traveling home from a party in Jackson on the day of Lisa's murder. Tim Basie was cooperative with police, too. He told them that Troy Willoughby pulled his car alongside Lisa Ehlers, and a confrontation between Troy and Lisa ensued and soon escalated. And according to Basie, Troy, having grabbed a gun from his glove compartment, had fired at Lisa, quote, two or three times. Furthermore, Troy Willoughby's own son had previously told investigators that his father had shot and killed a woman in Wyoming in a canyon in 1984. Willoughby had long since returned to Montana by then, and he was extradited back to Wyoming to face the murder charge in late 2009. He was held there on $1 million bond. Willoughby pleaded not guilty. The charges against Troy Willoughby passed a preponderance test in court in April, and the case moved to trial. As Lisa's friends and family breathed a sigh of relief and dealt with their surprise, Troy Willoughby's lawyers were of a different disposition altogether. In court filings, they accused investigators of coercion in extracting incriminating statements from Willoughby, as well as his ex-wife and his former friend and his son. Police who'd interviewed Willoughby back in 2009 before his arrest had told Troy Willoughby that DNA had been collected from the scene and it matched his own which it did not. In fact, no DNA had been collected from the scene. Further, Willoughby's confessions to being at the scene that morning came only after being questioned for 17 hours over two days and came after his initial repeated and ardent denials of being anywhere near the scene of the crime. 
And his confession to police came only after promises of immunity were given to him. Tell us what you know and we'll take it easy on you. That kind of thing. Willoughby's attorneys also pointed out that Troy Willoughby's ex-wife had never said a word about her husband's supposed involvement in the Lisa Ehlers case until she herself was arrested in Colorado in 2008 on three felony charges, whereupon she was told that things could be made easier for her own pending legal situation if she were able to provide police with information about her husband's involvement in Lisa Ehlers' shooting. It was then, and only then, that Troy Willoughby's former wife put him at the scene with a gun in his hand. It might surprise some of you to learn that cops can indeed lie to you, legally. Police in all 50 states can altogether make things up during an interrogation. Investigators can trick, invent, and deceive. They can legally claim that they've found your DNA at a murder scene, when they haven't. They can tell you that your cell phone places you somewhere that you weren't. They can tell you that 50 different people have come forward to say they saw you murder someone, even if they don't actually have a single witness. Indeed, lying to a person of interest is one of the most powerful tools police have in homicide investigations. Things get a lot messier, though, when police falsely promise immunity from prosecution in exchange for a confession. Falsely offering a collateral benefit, as it's called, like, say, immunity from prosecution in exchange for a confession, does not in itself make the confession out of bounds or inadmissible. But the promise of a collateral benefit when combined with other things like coercion or lying to them can potentially cause a problem for a case in court. If that sounds like it's kind of a fine line, it is indeed. And so who gets to decide what's allowed and what's not? Yeah, that's what judges are for. And a judge in the lead-up to the Willoughby murder trial ruled that the allegedly coerced confession obtained by law enforcement in this case would be allowed in his trial, which then commenced in January 2010. On the witness stand in the courtroom, Troy's former friend testified he'd personally witnessed Troy Willoughby punch Lisa Ehlers twice in the face on the side of the road and then shoot her twice. He testified that Lisa had been standing at the time he'd heard the first shot but he didn't see the second shot because he'd closed his eyes. In exchange for his testimony and cooperation, prosecutors agreed to give Tim Basie immunity from prosecution for having witnessed that crime and not reported it to police. As for the reason that Basie and Troy Willoughby were along the side of the road in the canyon that morning in the first place, well, as I said, that Florida connection never really went away in this case, not even for prosecutors. The state claimed that on the night before Lisa's murder, June 20, 1984, Troy Willoughby and Lisa Ehlers had somehow crossed paths at one of the various bars in town, and that Lisa Ehlers, 25 years old, active, busy person, real estate property manager, just hours before she's set to leave the state to meet her husband in Florida for the summer, that Lisa Ehlers, prosecutors say that's when Lisa sold Troy Willoughby a bag of cocaine. That, the state of Wyoming argued, was the motive for Lisa's murder at 6 a.m., 40 miles away the next morning. The theory went that Troy Willoughby had somehow felt cheated by the drug deal, and this supposed drug deal had taken place just before dawn, prosecutors said. Now, you might remember the problem with this theory. It directly contradicts information that was given to police early on by a waitress who'd served Lisa Ehlers her breakfast at 5 a.m. at her husband's restaurant. It was ironic, then, that back in the day, the information that had been used to establish within a two-minute window exactly when Lisa had been murdered 
25 years later in court, the prosecution was arguing that instead of having breakfast now, Lisa Ehlers had been selling drugs to Troy Willoughby before dawn. But going with the state's theory for a moment then, let's say that Troy Willoughby had bought drugs from Lisa and he realized that he'd somehow been cheated, so he left and went looking to hunt her down. That's what happened then, right? Well, not really. Tim Basie testified that he and Troy Willoughby had been driving home from Jackson and just so happened to see what they believed to be a familiar-looking car driving down the canyon. A small sort of chase ensued, and Lisa eventually pulled off the highway onto the turnoff. Troy did the same, according to Tim Basie, and she was dead moments later. On cross-examination, the defense accused Tim Basie of lying under oath, and for some reason, Tim Basie admitted to it. You're still lying even after you have immunity. You're still lying now, aren't you? The exchange went. About some things, yes, Basie replied. The state's star witness in the case having just admitted to the jury that he was actively lying to them. You'd think things couldn't have gotten a whole lot worse for the state's case, but then the state presented a drilling log from True Drilling, which is where Troy Willoughby had been working in Wyoming in 1984. And for June 21, 1984, the day of Lisa's murder, Troy Willoughby's name was included on the roster of employees on the well site south of Jackson, and thus could not have been shooting anyone in a canyon along Highway 191. This was a remarkable piece of tangible evidence, because if you think about it, it's difficult for most of us to have a solid alibi at 6 o'clock in the morning, and especially back then in an age before cell phones and technology, but Troy Willoughby apparently had a solid alibi. He was on a drill rig miles away when Lisa Ehlers was murdered. The state's response to this evidence was simple. The log was wrong. They called former rig employees who testified that the foreman on the job sometimes inaccurately included names of employees who weren't actually there on the job log. So the defense moved on to attacking Troy Willoughby's so-called confession, which they argued police and the FBI had obtained only after creating a seemingly hopeless circumstance for Willoughby. They had told him his DNA was at the scene, which it wasn't. They told him those out-of-state witnesses had identified him at the scene, which they hadn't. The concept of reasonable doubt is worth a brief mention, I think, right here. I mean, we all know the term, beyond a reasonable doubt. But have you thought about what that actually means? It's sort of an unfortunate phrase, I think, because it contains two very subjective words. What is reasonable? And what is your individual threshold for doubt? Reasonable doubt in a murder trial means all but certain. So when you hear the phrase reasonable doubt, replace that in your mind with all but certain. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, are you all but certain this defendant murdered this victim based solely on the evidence that the prosecution has put forward during the trial. All but certain. You weren't there yourself, you couldn't see it, so you can't be 100% sure, but are you 95% sure or 99% sure? Are you all but certain that this man committed the crime based on the evidence? That's the job of a jury in a criminal trial. It's a very high standard the state has to meet, and with good reason. It's the way our system is prioritized. It's where the old expression comes from, better a hundred killers go free than one innocent person go to prison. We have said collectively, if our system is going to get it wrong, we'd rather err on the side of releasing the guilty than convicting the innocent. But obviously things don't always work out that way. 
After a seven-day trial featuring 80 exhibits, a jury found Troy Willoughby guilty of first-degree murder, a quarter century after Lisa Ayler's death. That's not where the story ends, though. The following year, in 2011, a prosecutor came forward and revealed a bombshell. Law enforcement hadn't disclosed all of the evidence they collected in the Lisa Ayler's case, including some evidence that might have pointed to Troy Willoughby's potential innocence. It turned out that Troy Willoughby hadn't been in Jackson at all the night before Lisa Ayler's was killed, and what's more, police knew that to be true for a fact. Because at midnight, the night before Lisa Ayler's was killed, a sheriff's deputy called Troy Willoughby on his landline home phone. Somebody had made allegations that Willoughby had thrown a rock at someone's car, and the deputy had called him to ask him about it at midnight, 65 miles away from Jackson. Sheriff's investigators knew, obviously, this evidence would help Willoughby's case in court, and it would completely destroy the prosecution's theory of motive, and so they hid the evidence. They didn't give it to prosecutors. And this isn't conjecture, this is known fact, because an audio recording was made by another sheriff's deputy. On the audio recording, secretly recorded, some of the investigators on the case can be heard discussing this potentially exculpatory evidence and deliberately choosing not to turn it over to prosecutors. The evidence was not given to the prosecution, so it wasn't given to Troy Willoughby's lawyers either. And in a murder case, that's a big, big deal. It was a big enough deal to give Troy Willoughby a new trial. Prosecutors didn't have to try the case again, though. And there is a risk. If they tried Troy Willoughby and he were found not guilty, he could never again be charged for Lisa Ayler's murder. But they chose to do it anyway. And in 2012, a new jury in his second murder trial found Troy Dean Willoughby not guilty of murder. He was released from custody, having spent more than three years in prison. For his wrongful imprisonment, among other violations of his rights, he was awarded $1.25 million in a settlement. The incident also led to the removal of two sheriff's investigators involved in covering up evidence in the case, among other negative ramifications for the state. Upon his exoneration, and now a millionaire, Troy Willoughby retreated from public view. And Troy Willoughby was lucky. Because under Wyoming law, there's a two-year time limit in which new evidence can be brought forward following a felony conviction to be considered for a new trial. Although there is an exception for this when it comes to DNA evidence. But if you've been convicted of a crime and you want to prove your innocence, you have two years to find it. After that, you're out of luck. And that report stating that Troy Willoughby was called by a police officer in his home that night was not revealed until 18 months after he'd been convicted of Lisa Ayler's murder. Had that secret been kept for just six months longer, Troy Willoughby would still be in prison today. An exonerated man's freedom having been taken away from him is the ultimate possible failure of our criminal justice system, but there is another deeper tragedy, perhaps, that these efforts to convict Troy Willoughby of Lisa Ayler's murder have made the chances of solving her case all the longer. (laughs) 
Sources for this episode include the Jackson Hole News and the Casper Star Tribune. I'd like to give a shout out and thanks to our Patreon supporters, Julia and Jess. Welcome you both, our two newest supporters. Patreon supporters of this show enjoy early access to every episode and some bonus content that I produce for just them. Really, though, the main thing, it helps this show continue on. And if you enjoy the show and you're able to do so, you can join their Patreon support at patreon.com slash Podcast, Or you can Google Dead and Gone in Wyoming on Patreon and get there too. Otherwise, there are free and easy things that you can do to show support for the show. Give it a positive rating wherever you're listening, or just post that review on your own social media, Twitter, Facebook, whichever. Maybe even better, pick somebody who you think might like the show one of your friends or co-workers and tell them about it, just one, and show them how to listen if you have to. I love producing these shows and telling these stories. And thank you all for listening and spreading the word. But that's all the time we have for this month. So for everyone at County10.com, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.